Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. Oh, yeah. Well, the only consumer demand initially was just mine. Like, I was thirsty. <laughs> and, you know, this is often, as so many entrepreneurs, we don't have the market research capabilities. So you take a punt, right? Yeah, you take yeah. a punt. But, but actually, a lot of times, that's really useful. And, and because I don't think a, um, a, a traditional market research approach would have found this. Yes, we're with Seth Goldman, founder of Honest Tea, this week. What's it like when your lovely little startup sells out to a behemoth like Coca-Cola? Seth knows and is going to tell us exactly what it's like. Stay tuned. Yeah, welcome back. This is episode 34 of the Better Business Show. Thanks uh, for coming back. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, so I'm in Bristol this week. I've come down to see uh, to see Vicky Knowles. Hello, Vix. Hey, how you doing? Very well. Very good to be down here. We I know. Yeah. I wish we could do this every week. Uh, meet up in person. Um, but we're sitting in the uh, in the corner here in the rather cool watershed. For those of, of you tuning in, uh, the fellow Bristolians like Vix. Uh, you'll know it's a, an art house cinema, and uh, we're just enjoying a drink here in Bristol. Um, I think we should start the episode by giving a very warm and friendly plug to uh, our t-shirt shop, Vix. I expected you to be wearing your t-shirts. <laughs> for all you know, I could be. From all that you can see. <laughs> this is true. I, I, I thought you'd be rushing out to buy one of the, the t-shirts. I know. Well, you know, it's on my list. Well, anyway, um, if you if you fancy a T-shirt, you know that the the Better Business Show T-shirt store is open now. Uh, BetterBusinessShow.tmil. That's t double e mil If you're interested in that, they are cool T-shirts. Um, right, shall we introduce this week's guest business, and then we can get into our our chat and round up the the week's news. Um, so this week we're talking uh, about honest tea uh, as a slight departure from our usual format this week. I was invited to London to the home of Coca-Cola Great Britain in the week uh, and I was asked to moderate a breakfast roundtable session with a whole bunch of uh, great businesses and NGOs, many of whom our listeners might know, some of them have been guests on the show, uh, so it was all very, very exciting. Um, the event was hosted by Honest Tea, not necessarily a company I've come across uh, before, but if you're listening in the US, you'll pretty, pretty much know them, I suspect. An organic, low-calorie bottled drink uh, sold over in the US in large numbers, very, very popular beverage. Uh, and it began life as a startup. And the founder, Seth Goldman, had a moment when he'd been running in Central Park. He'd finished running and he was thirsty, but there was nothing really on the market that he, uh, he wanted to, to quench his thirst. They were all too sweet, too sugary. Um, so he decided to do something about it. And in his, uh, in his kitchen, he, along with uh, his teacher at the time, uh, Barry uh, Nailbuff, who was teaching Seth at the Yale School of Management. They played around with some ingredients and then Honest Tea was born. And the good news is, Vix, uh, is that Honest Tea is coming here to the UK and that's why Seth was in London to, to launch uh, the product. So the session that, that I moderated was all about how, how can brands be a force for good? And of course, you know, there's a very simple answer to that. Of course, they can be a force for good and there's many good examples out there to, to prove the point. Uh, but of course there's many nuances involved in answering that question. Of course there's many challenges and obstacles along the way. What does good even mean in that context? What if being good is at odds with what your various stakeholders want you to be and do? 
what happens when your business morphs or transitions in times of economic or social pressure? Is it possible to hold on to those founding principles and stay true to your mission? Um, creating and running a so-called mission-driven business is something that's not easy, but it's something we've showcased on the show over the last few weeks. Um, and we've been finding that some serious opportunities available for these businesses. Um, but what happens when you sell your mission-driven business to a global corporate like Coca-Cola? Yes, which is what Seth and Barry did back in 2011. Is it possible to maintain your integrity and keep your entrepreneurial spirit alive and well under the pressure of quarterly reporting and keeping shareholders happy? And the conversation you're about to hear was recorded in a boardroom during the session that I chaired. So it's not the best quality, uh, a bit like this recording we're doing now here in this busy cafe in Bristol. But uh, Seth's insights and experiences with honesty are second to none. I hope you like it. Here it is. Why don't we um, start with uh, 1998 okay. and the formation of honesty? What happened, Seth? What sure. brought you to to set this business up? Sure. So the origins actually even go back to 1995. Okay. Uh, when I was at the Yale School of Management, the co-founder of the company was my professor from business school where um, I was in his class and we were talking about the beverage industry <coughs> and the question came up, uh, well, where are there any holes? You know, we've all walked that beverage aisle and it's a wall of bottles and it's hard to imagine, you know, with all the market research capabilities companies have, how could there be anything missing? But when Barry asked the question, I knew what I was missing was this less sweet drink. You know, everything sort of had, at the time had 100 calories per eight ounces or zero calories or artificial ingredients. And at the time, um, Barry and I got excited about it and he said, let's do some focus groups, let's make some samples. And I was in my second year of business school, so I said, <laughs> I can't do that, but it's fun to, <laughs> that's a nice idea. Um, but I, I tabled the idea and then I came to, uh, moved down to Bethesda, Maryland near DC and was working for the Calvert Group. It's a mutual fund company that does social investing, uh, so you know, so environmentally screened funds and, and some early stage uh, private equity. And uh, I had gone in 1997 to New York to, to give a presentation to a bunch of institutional investors where um, I would say the, I was talking about socially responsible investing and these, it was a fairly uh, lukewarm response, I'll say, to the, you know, the institutional investors. And I was just to the point of feeling, I'm not sure this is, I'm feeling the traction of this. Like I, I love I Calvert, I love the idea, I love what it stands for, but I'm not sure we're gaining momentum with this idea. Um, this was back in 97. So after the presentation, I went for a run in Central Park, and after the run, I was thirsty. And I went to a beverage cooler, and I saw that there was still nothing on the shelf there that was gonna quench my thirst, and I said, okay, I think I am. Recall, I recall Barry's conversation, so I think I need to do something about this. And I reached out to Barry, because when I was Barry's student in uh, business school, we had talked about maybe like an orangina with less sugar, sort of a juice and seltzer type of combo. That was the original idea. But Barry had just come back from India uh, in, in 1997, and he had been studying the uh, tea industry, and he'd come up with the name Honest Tea. And so I, he says, well, not only am I still interested in the idea of a less sweet beverage, but I think this name Honest Tea could really give an um, umbrella to what we're doing. And so for me, that clicked. Just, I had that um, passion and work around socially responsible business. I was thirsty. He had a name, and I said, okay, this feels like there's enough here. So we started brewing tea in my uh, kitchen. And eventually I left my job at Calvert, and of course that was a little bit of a surreal moment when I um, told the president of Calvert I was leaving to start a beverage company, which I had no experience in. Um, so uh, 
I left and started brewing tea in my kitchen. Uh, we got five thermoses of tea that we put tea in. We got an empty Snapple bottle that we pasted a label on and got an appointment with the local Whole Foods office um, in Maryland and said, we want to sell this in your store. And uh, you know, to my great <laughs> delight and simultaneous horror, the virus said, great, we'll take 15,000 bottles. <laughs> and so. <laughs> Um, need a bigger cake yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, I kept the, the straight face and said, "Oh, that's wonderful." You know, and uh, that we that gave us our chance to go. And we we started um, uh, from the you know from that meeting, figuring out where to brew the tea, how to create the labels. And we so that meeting was in March of '98, and by um, the end of May, we delivered the product to the shelf. The first five batches, so it was very quick, very quick. I mean, that was, I'm sure we've all been in the situation, that was easily the best um, dynamic, which was hard, you know, very uh, aggressive deadline, not quite enough time, um, but no choice, you know, because you, you don't launch a beverage company in October. You either launch it in, Ju you know, in May and June, or you're, you wait a year. <laughs> so we made it. And that first summer, all we did was give out samples. And in the beginning, it was just about a less sweet drink. It was just 17 calories per eight ounces, so much less sweet than anything out there. And we got great uh, response in the Whole Foods stores. By the end of that summer, we were the best-selling tea in just the 17 stores we were in. Um, but what we found is we were having trouble getting beyond that, beyond those stores. We weren't um, crossing over. And so. Uh, we started to um, think about, you know, how can we grow a little more? And, and it was funny. We it was one of our board members. We we started to attract a really neat board, um, and one of the board members, Terry Hersberg, the CEO, of Sto the CEO. So I'm the CEO. He's the C CEO of Stonyfield Yogurt. So the yo of the, um, which, which is the first organic yogurt company. He said, you know, um, why not make the tea a little sweeter? Not, you know, don't go to 100 calories. But if you're at 17, why not go to 30 calories? And I remember at the time that being such a big idea, like, oh, is that, you know, are we betraying what we stood for? <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was basically, we thought it was gonna be this big deal. It was, it was basically, a, you know, unregistered on the, the seismic scale, but it did help our product become more accessible to mainstream audiences. And so we started to then get into broader distribution into bagel stores and that kind of thing. And so we started growing beyond natural foods, but we also started growing more quickly in natural foods. And by uh, 99, we brought out the, the world's first organic bottled tea. And as we started to learn about organic, and uh, we started to learn about how tea was grown, we came to appreciate the value of organic. And the, the quick way to talk about it is um, tea leaves, unlike a lot of uh, produce, are never rinsed. So if any chemicals are sprayed on a tea leaf, they, they'll stay on the leaf until hot water is poured on the leaf, in which, in which time the chemicals are rinsed into the drink. And that's the tea that you would drink if it's not organic. So we realized if you could avoid ingesting uh, a chemical called compound designed to kill living organisms, that would probably be a good thing for, <laughs> for you, <laughs> for, the, for, the, um, for the ecosystem as well. And obviously, for the, the, uh, as I started to visit tea gardens, and they saw tea pluckers literally up to their armpits in tea bushes, that wouldn't that be great if we could avoid having that chemical impact on those ecosystems. And so then, in, um, as we continue to learn more about the working conditions of uh, the tea gardens, we also came to appreciate that um, there was an opportunity here. Tea is one of the world's cheapest commodities. So um, we buy some of the world's best tea. Um, that's, that's not a brag, that's just a fact. And yet we're still spending you know, four cents per bottle, which is, by the way, four times as much as other a lot of other companies spend, but it's still affordable. And we realized we could create community wealth and do it in a way that is 
not charity, it's business, but it's sustainable business. And so uh, we, in 2003, became the first to make a fair trade certified bottled tea. Uh, and then we continued the path toward organic and um, fair trade. So in 2004, we made all of our teas organic. And then um, it wasn't until 2011 we were able to make all of our teas fair trade certified. Um, and so now all the teas we sell are fair trade certified and organic. It wasn't until this year, 2016, that we were able to make all of the sugar that we buy fair trade certified and organic as well. So, you know, we look at it as it's, 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 it's a long path, you know, with a <coughs> um, and as long as we keep iterating and improving, that's really the, the goal uh, and challenging ourselves to continue to deepen our impact. So um, we were growing well. We, we became the best selling tea in the natural foods industry around 2004. We were, um, but what we realized is we were selling healthy products to healthy people, which is a noble and I, I, I don't, I don't want to anyway say that was a bad thing to do. That was a nice thing to do, um, but it wasn't as powerful as we knew it could be. And we never set out just to create a model uh, of change. We wanted to be a driver of change. And so we um, struggled around distribution. And I was, was um, you know, saying with Nick earlier that the challenge with the beverage industry, unlike a snack bar company, if we have a snack bar company, we can ship it through the mail and, and gain distribution that way. But beverage beverages are heavy. They, um, the turnover is very quick. So if we were to uh, FedEx a box or UPS or whatever to send, send a box of beverages to a store overnight, and by the way, I realize that beverages is a term, you all don't use, I'll use the word, try to use the word drinks. <laughs> if we were to send a box of drinks to a store overnight, um, you know, they could put, unpack it and put it in the box, but um, it's unlikely anyone's minding the shelf the way um, a beverage uh, distribution a drink distribution company would where they're literally coming in every day and stocking the shelf. And so um, we weren't going to get the scale uh, we wanted unless we had a national network of drinks distributors around the country. And we had the coast covered, but we didn't have the rest of the country covered. And so we um, started to realize we were missing opportunities. We got approached by Safeway, one of the large chains in the U.S. They said, we want your product in all our stores. And we said, well, we can cover the coast. And they said, well, when you can cover the, all of our stores, let us know. And we realized we were, at, we were approaching, we weren't yet at an impasse, but we were approaching an impasse. And that's why we felt like we needed a strategic partner. And it just so happened that at the time, this was now 2007, Coca-Cola um, created a group called Venturing and Emerging Brands. And it was designed to uh, identify and invest and build the next billion dollar brand uh, for Coca-Cola. This was in North America. And they had just been through uh, a very expensive transaction uh, with vitamin water. They spend over $4 billion to buy that. Um, and I think they felt there's got to be a better way to innovate than just buying big, a big brand like that. And um, so um, we said we weren't interested in selling, but we were interested in a partner who could help us scale. And that worked well for Coca-Cola. So in uh, 2008, Coke bought 40% of the company. and. Um, we continued to run the business out of Bethesda and we continued to grow. So at that time in 2008, we were at about, or just in 2007, we were at about $20 million in sales as a company. Um, and we were in 15,000 stores. Uh, and over the next three years, and then you know, where we are today, so now we're in over 100,000 stores. Um, we're over 200 million in sales. Uh, and, and what's nice about the way it's evolved is that um, we're really in every, criterion that's important to me, and then talk about what defines the brand, so it's always been about being less sweet, organic, and fair trade. Those are the sort of the key guardrails for the brand. That as long as we have that, 
we can do <laughs> all kinds of different things. And in every aspect, um, we deepen that. So we are um, we have far more unsweetened or zero calorie drinks than we start than we did in 2007. From an organic perspective, we were buying 800,000 pounds of organic ingredients back in 2007. Last year, we bought bought over 15 million. Hmm. So our our ability to drive, uh, to create demand and drive, you know, the supply chain changes is dramatic. And then on the fair trade side, in 2007, about 40% of our products were fair trade. Now, all of them are fair trade, all the teas are fair trade certified and the sugar uh, as well. So um, just a, a significantly more impactful enterprise. Um, so I, that's, that's sort of where the business is. And of course, that brings us to today where we're launching here. And it's such an exciting moment for me because this is, uh, this is the kind of occasion I used to daydream about during the bad old days. Mm -hmm. They weren't bad, but they were more challenging and the kind of thing that keeps you going when you're running on fumes. And I'll just quickly talk, I want to just talk about the macro picture that I see happening and then, then want to open this up. But um, it's such an exciting moment uh, in, in the food economy. And, and food is one of these um, places, one of these unique categories that people interact with every day in a very personal way, literally, I remember the conversation I had with one of our, we had a board member who was the CEO of Timberland, the footwear and apparel company, and I was walking with him in Bethesda, and we came across somebody wearing a Timberland shirt. He said, look how, see, look how personal that is. That person's taking our product, and they're putting it on their body. He says, what could be more personal than that? I realized, mm -hmm. you know, taking your product and putting it in your body or, <laughs> or putting it in your baby's body is very personal. Mm -hmm. and, and it is um, this incredible moment where people are really rethinking uh, their food and the food system. And, and, and big companies are, are recognizing it and unlikely to be able to innovate themselves, but recognize they have to be part of the change. And so um, I think there's two really big directions happening in food, and I, in a way I'm sort of being in, bo in both of them. So one of them is the undoing of food. It is the um, back to basics of sort of stripping away, whether it's a simplifying of ingredients or localization of food, or um, taking things that, even with honest tea, thinking about we've got beverages that are very complicated and more lab-driven, and then you think about how do we get back to simple ingredients, uh, as much transparency to the supply chain and, and, the, and the community, the sourcing chain as possible. So that's one direction. The other one is the redoing of food, and this speaks to whether it's Beyond Meat or Ripple Foods, the idea that we can recreate certain food experiences or categories and do it in a way that um, overcomes a shortcoming. So if you can create a plant-based burger that is as satisfying from a sensory perspective as a cow patty, but, but um, comes without all of the, the extra negative externalities of a cow, of, of, of an animal-based protein, um, that could be a very powerful driver of change environmentally from a health perspective, whether it's no cholesterol. Um, so, so this is really exciting. And consumers are open to both. And on the one hand, they're contradictory because one's undoing, one's redoing. One's sort of simplification, one's a <coughs> complexity, and then again simplification. But I think they both are, um, they're not mutually exclusive. I, 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 <laughs> maybe I, unless I'm, a, you know, because I, I, I feel myself a consumer of both. And so it's just a really neat moment where uh, unprecedented opportunity to recreate the food system um, with tremendous, con it's all consumer driven, of course, and, and to have that. Um, so that's why, why all, as I sort of, mm. you all went around the table and introduced yourselves, it was, you know, I, I totally could understand, you know, saw how each one of you fit into this, 
narrative uh, and a part of the, part of the story that that is unfolding. And I, I was saying to Nick, it, you know, this will be a unique moment. Ten years, twenty years from now, we'll look back and sort of say this was the era where the mm. food system took a, a turn in a different mm. direction. So very interested in exploring supply chain ethics. Yeah. Very interested in this whole dynamic between your relationship with Coca-Cola and, and how that's evolved and developed yeah. over time. Uh, but I want to spend a bit of time talking about exactly what you're, you mentioned there, consumers, and, and them being the driver yeah. in, in scaling up this business. Yeah. And um, yeah, you mentioned that you know this started about creating a product that was less sweet, yeah. and then the supply chain ethics came in afterwards. Was that driven by the consumer <laughs> demand that you saw? Oh, or? yeah. Well, the only consumer demand initially was just mine. Like, I was thirsty. <laughs> and, you know, this is often, as so many entrepreneurs, we don't have the market research capabilities. So you take a punt, right? Yeah, you take yeah. a punt. But, but actually, a lot of times, that's really useful. And, and because I don't think a, um, a, a traditional market research approach would have found this. Right. right? You know, if you Especially in uh, 1998, yeah. uh, people, a traditional market research, it, it goes by comparative taste test. So they'd ask a consumer, which taste do you like better? And there's no, yeah. uh, every consumer would say, well, I like the sweeter taste because they're, you know, tasting this much of it. It's not, they're not tasting in context. They're not, um, so, so I do think there's an authenticity that comes from these, from entrepreneurs where we, because we, I, you know, it starts with something we identify with first, and mm. then yeah. it's out of a personal passion. Then we have to find it and make it relevant else to everyone else. Uh, so you mentioned this potential uh, Safeway conversation, where it's yeah. potentially, you know, you can access all the stores if you can scale up right. uh, overnight. Uh, had you considered what the future might look like for the business before yeah. that point? Yeah, we were at a place we saw. So there were a few. What we looked, for example, one of the companies that um, we were a little envious of at the time. This was two thousand seven, mind you, was a company called Jones Soda. And they had gone public, and their market cap was seven hundred fifty million dollars. Their sales were about forty million dollars, and their, their market cap was seven hundred fifty million. And we thought, wow, look at the resources. Mm -hmm. But I kept saying to myself, okay, but it's a beverage company. How are they're not really getting distribution from that? They're just getting more capital. And if you and if they, what they could have done is try to build out a truck fleet, you know, of distribution. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't, and today, Jones Soda, I don't know if they're delisted, but their sales are about $20 million. Their market cap is, is I, I, either sort of 20 million or, or less. Yeah. Um, so I think the, um, the alternative, we probably would have had to sell to somebody. We just weren't gonna be able to build our own distribution network. And frankly, that's not an expertise, you know, uh, I wanna have. We, we are, um, we, we ran a bottling plant for six years, uh, and that was a, one of the bad decisions we made. Where it's like, this isn't, this isn't, we're, <laughs> we're not doing anything here to propel our mission forward. That there's, there's bottling plants all around the country. There's fleets of trucks all around the country, and unless we are, have, a, have an in, a science or innovation expertise that's really unique, and we want to focus on that, yeah. we should be thinking about just, let's make the best beverage we can with the highest impact we can, and let somebody else do the infrastructure work. We came into Coke and we sort of talked about the same aggressive growth goals we had when we were independent, which was every year we tried to grow sort of 50, 60, 70, 80%. And we realized, we said, let's, let's make sure that the only mistake you can make in a big company is to overstate your goals. Um, so early on we said, let's make sure we set out achievable goals. And it doesn't mean they're unaggressive, but if we thought we were gonna grow 30%, so let's say we're gonna grow 15. Mm. And 15 is still aggressive within a large public company. Um, but when we grow 30, 
mm -hmm. then we're good. So from our, what happened was, um, as long as there were no bad surprises, so the bad, bad, public companies hate bad surprises. That's, the, that's not, they don't like surprises, they don't like bad surprises. Mm -hmm. So um, I th what we found is as long as we deliver our business plan, um, we renew our license to do our, we have still our own culture, we, we, we really don't, I mean we watch sales every day because we are still entrepreneurial, but we don't watch it because we have to mm -hmm. time and beat Mark, you know, mm -hmm. certain um, deliverables. So we've we've really been insulated in a in a in a, in a way that I um, <coughs> appreciate. <laughs> we definitely, when Coke made the first investment, we felt a, a, a lot of uh, blowback. You know, um, the co-ops, a lot of co-ops, and even um, like NYU, New York University cafeteria threw us out because they didn't want any Coke products. Um, and what we said at the time, what I said at the time was. Well, keep us honest. If you ever see us backing down from our mission, if you see us compromising what we've stood for, let us know. And uh, what happened over the ensuing years was, you know, we continued to deepen what we were doing in organics. We converted everything to fair trade. We just, as I said, brought the fair trade sugar in. We continued to innovate. Uh, I, I remember having a conversation with the CEO of Whole Foods right at the time of the investment, Walter Robb, and I said, nothing's going to change. We're going to keep doing what we have been doing. He says, but that's not, that's not, I don't want to hear that. You've always been the innovator. You've always been pushing the envelope, and I want you to continue to innovate. And, uh, and so, actually, that was a great challenge. We, we then brought out several new product lines, some of which failed, and, you know, failed first at Whole Foods, but they still appreciated that we were out there taking those risks. So, um, yes, I mean, we've, we, we still have a few co-ops that don't carry our product. But to move from 15,000 stores to 100,000 stores and still be the top-selling tea in the natural foods channel, um, I would take that trade off, and I, I uh, you know, and, and look at Beyond Meat as we scale, we always are going to want to be relevant to vegans, and the hardcore vegans. We want to pass their <coughs> tests, where you know, uh, and at the same time, we want to be in the meat section. You know, we want to be a merchandise right alongside the hamburgers, and and uh, th that's how we'll drive the biggest change. Um, so, uh, I wonder, are there yeah. specific things you can point to, maybe in the supply chain, for mm -hmm. instance, where you think. Actually, yeah, we couldn't have had that sort of impact, positive well, impact, if we hadn't. Have there's sold. a few things first that I want because um, one of the things is one reason that we've been able to keep this is because our the the brand definitions are third party certified, and this gets a little bit to the the concept of the B Corp. So um, when we started with organic, everything we sell is organic, and organic is not just uh, a term we made up or we choose to use when we when convenient. It's a USDA or Department of Agriculture federally enforced standard. So. There's never been pressure at Coke to compromise that, but if there were, I can say, well, look, we can't use this cheaper sweetener or we can't use this you know, artificial ingredient. Um, it's, it's not organic. And the same with fair trade. It's not about, this isn't about a claim, oh, we're treating people well. It's, there's a third party verified um, audit that goes into fair trade claims so that we have to, it has to be backed up. So that, that first is one important standard. The other thing I think that's been helpful is that um, Coke was a, a minority investor for the first three years, so we really were able to run the company as our own entrepreneurial. And there were moments where folks in Atlanta said, we'd like you to do this, and I'd say, thank you for your opinion. <laughs> and we didn't do that, and, and we had the ability. That must be tough. But it was tough. There were, there were some very um, white-knuckle moments. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but, but during that period, um, we made it clear where we were going to stand our ground. Right. And we, you know, we didn't have to re- fight those fights, and that really helped give us enough of our own latitude to mm. protect it. Yeah. 
So I mentioned we just moved to fair trade sugar this year. So why did that take so long? Well, there are two things that happened. One is that we worked with the, the um, supply chain to build up the supply. There wasn't enough fair trade sugar available. But the other one is it does cost more. But because of our purchasing through Coca-Cola, we were able to move to a, a new bottle that was about one and a half cents less expensive than our previous bottle. And the, the cost of the, the fair trade sugar is about 0.75 cents. So I said, all right, that's how, how we fund it. And then the other half, you know, we'll put towards our margin. But what's really neat about the decision is that it didn't come out of Bethesda, where I'm based, but out of Atlanta. And so that was, for me, a great moment of validation. Okay, this, uh, you know, we've sort of got the folks, our partners in Atlanta, thinking about this, this the right way. And, and of course, I support it, so this is wonderful. Mm. <laughs> but um, it was neat that it came from them. So, Seth, launching the UK this week. Yeah. Europe, next week. <laughs> <laughs> we've got to get the UK right first. Okay. So, yeah, this, okay. is, this is our first step. I mean, what's so wonderfully um, uh, a luxury is that you know, for the first 10 years, distribution was just the bear. That was the thing that kept me up at night, and that's the one thing we get, not automatically, but it's, you know, this is what Coca-Cola yeah. brings to it. So we're already in 2,500 accounts um, yeah. that- Is it in all the major retailers? Not yet, so it's in the co-op stores, it's in Whole Foods, it's in WH uh, Smith. So those are sort of the three we're starting with, but we're, we're gonna be going out to the rest of them uh, over the next few uh, weeks and months. We're bringing in, yeah. Uh, uh, later this month or next month, we're bringing in three of our um, salespeople from Honesty in the U.S. and they want an all-expenses-paid trip uh, to come work for a week <laughs> <laughs> in, here in the U.K. But for them, that's a really neat opportunity. And the second prize is two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we'll we'll go build it the same way. Well, actually, we also I'll share with you. So the the marketing for Honesty, as you might expect, is not the traditional marketing of most large companies. So we're going to be conducting, and we have been conducting, a test we do in the United States called the National Honesty Index. Here it's going to be the, the London Honesty Index, where we've gone to eight different neighborhoods throughout London, and we set up a rack of tea, and we put up a sign that says, uh, Honest Store, a dollar a bottle, or not a dollar, in this case a pound a bottle, Honor System, and there's no cashier, there's no visible uh, camera, and... Uh, we have but we have a um, one of our one of our representatives just sitting you know with an iPad tracking who pays and who doesn't pay and then we'll tabulate the results and announce which is the most honest neighborhood in London we've done it in the United States for seven years in a row uh, we do, we've done different cities uh -huh. and so we just last week result the results in the US so um, it's a really fun, engaging experiment. It's a fun, interactive way for people to interact. Um, just Until somebody tells you the Bannon does not taste a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we had somebody try that actually in Washington, D.C. But, but um, <laughs> the, so guess how honest people are in the U.S.? What percent of people pay voluntarily? 85%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this year was 93%. Wow. Wow. And every year it's around 93. Last year was 94. I mean, it's a very... It's a much higher level, so I'm, uh, I'm confident it will be above 90%. It's, it's, it's funny. Seth Goldman there, talking to me as part of a special roundtable organised by Coca-Cola in preparation for the entry of Honest Tea into the UK market this week. So very exciting times for Seth and the team there. Uh, but this notion of companies selling out to large corporates, there's been lots of examples of this in recent years. 
uh, you know, most famously the body shop selling to L'Oreal. You had Ben and Jerry's selling to to Unilever. Uh, what you didn't hear in that uh, edit was uh, the rest of the participants around the table asking questions of Seth as well. But some really interesting points being made. We had Paul Lindley there from Ella's Kitchen, um, a company that also sold out to a big parent company a few, a few years back, uh, but with very similar sort of challenges to Honest Tea. Of course, a big focus on organic. Uh, what, what do you think of Honest Tea Fix? And this, this, you know, it must be incredibly difficult selling out, selling your baby to a, to a corporate piece. What do you reckon? Definitely. Um, I don't know much about Honest Tea, but like, say with the body shop, uh, I'm someone who does think about the stuff I'm buying and say like the body shop don't do animal testing but l'oreal do so what do you do there but um like i like innocent smoothies as well i think coca-cola owns them as well and i guess if you buy innocent smoothie you're showing that you actually believe in their ethos i'd say that coca-cola might in the future realize that there's like money to be made in that area and so it might change their business as a result so it's kind of it's ups, ups and downs kind there of thing. And Seth was saying that you know he's, he's, he's managed to kind of insulate himself within the business. So he's sort of kind of protected himself to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating really. Um, so I say Paul Lindley was there from Ella's Kitchen. I'm desperate to get him on the show. So he, he gave me one of his business cards when, I, when, he, when he left. So I'm going to give him a ring. But um, I was reading the, uh, the business card on the way home on the train. His job title reads Ella's Dad. Obviously, the company named after his death. Yeah, I yeah, know. And his daughter's now 17. And uh, yeah, it's great. So I think we'll get him on the show soon. It's been three days since gave you his number. Is that, is that the rule? Is it? <laughs> yeah, I think it is. No, exactly. But let, let, us, let us know what you think of Honesty in the usual way. Find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, tomidle.narrativematters.co.uk if you want to email me. Um, so let's do the, the news roundup, Vix. Um, I guess the, the, the main kind of story that's dominating sustainable business right now is, is, uh, is Apple and the corporation tax scandal that happened this week. Uh, so yeah, the, the tech giant was ordered to pay back to the Irish government 13 billion euros. Um, and yeah, the EU's been investigating. It's found that the, the company paid between 0.005% and 1% tax in Ireland thanks to some sweetheart um, tax ruling that was granted by the Irish government a few, few, few well, decades back now. Um, Ireland doesn't want the money back because it's worried that it's going to deter investment, particularly by uh, US, you know, big US multinationals in the future. Um, but it's a story that's kind of got everyone talking and it's, it poses so many questions. I mean, I'm sure that Apple's not the only company to be doing this. Uh, Vix, I'm sure there's lots of companies out there now worried that they'll kind of be found out in a similar way. Um, and it's just sad, really. I was having a conversation with a PR agency this week about um, the fact that companies don't really want to talk about their sustainability stories because they want everything to be perfect. They don't really want to even put their heads above the parapet to talk about even small stories because they're worried they'll get shot at for, for other things. And it's really sad. And actually, you know, my advice is always that you should talk about all of your stories, even the things that you're not quite, you know, there with yet, uh, but it's not happening. And I just thought, imagine being within Apple right now. You're working on some amazing projects, innovative, future thinking, and that's going to blow people's minds. And then all of a sudden, you get a scandal like this, and that's all that anyone's going to be talking about about Apple. Well, at least until the next iPhone comes out, and then we'll all isn't we'll all be. Uh, iPhone due like now? Isn't September when they? they it won't, bring won't out? be long, and then we'll all love them again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think the, it, everyone's talking about it now, but I really think people sort of get forgotten about or swept under the carpet. Yeah, so what, what else have you seen this week? 
so this week um, there's a great article in The Guardian about, um, so next month, China's tallest tower and the second tallest in the world is opening its doors. 632 meters. It's tall, it's all right. Uh, the Shanghai Tower boasts all sorts, including the world's fastest elevators and tallest viewing platforms, but it's also claiming to be the world's greenest skyscraper. So the 128-story tower has been awarded LEED Platinum, sorry, which is the top green rating, and is the only super tall tower to do so, apparently. Um, it's got 200 wind turbines spinning on top, which generates about 10% of the building's electricity, and it's got more than 40 energy-saving measures, including rainwater collection and reusing wastewater. So it is claimed to cut 34,000 metric tons from its annual carbon footprint. Um, so there's obviously the argument that the idea of green skyscrapers is controversial, you know, with buildings being huge carbon emitters. Um, but in the article, uh, Serene Marshall, executive director for the Centre of Sustainability at the Urban Land Institute, points out that yes, bu buildings might be the largest contributor to climate change, but transport is a very close second. So if we don't have this dense fabric or this dense like urban population living in close proximity, then more people are going to be using cars to like get to work if they have to travel further. Um, and then critics are also saying that actually the lead criteria is more focused on development rather than what happens to it afterwards. Um, and so they use an example in the article about um, the Bank of America Tower in New York, which at the time was hailed the world's most environmentally responsible office building when it opened in 2010. But now it produces more greenhouse gases and uses more energy per square foot than any other comparable Manhattan office building. So perhaps with this Shanghai one, its greenness is yet to be seen. Exactly, and there's a real competition brewing, isn't there, between uh, well, the, the green credentials of, of buildings used to be all about how high and how big, but now it's about how green, which is, yeah, very exciting, very exciting. I mean, I, I worry about China, though. Uh, it seems like a country of such contradictions, doesn't it? Um, well, it, it is, it is. I think China is now the biggest renewables market in the world, more than double the US home to almost one in every three wind turbines globally and then you've got all this smog you've got all this pollution you just think this, their sustainability story just does not stack up yet uh, yeah. but yeah this these buildings look good um, yeah that's cool I think air pollution that's that's uh, in the news isn't it right it is it, it takes us nicely segued along to our next story this week uh, sucking greenhouse gases out of the air and using it to create something better is, let's face it, one of our favourite things to talk about on the show. We've had some good examples on so far. I picked up on two new examples. Uh, this was on sustainable brands this week. And I, as ever, I'll, I'll put the links in the show notes this week. Um, the first is a new innovation from Tiger Beer, which is obviously part of the Heineken Group. And it's been working alongside Marcel, Sydney, and an MIT spin-off called Gravikey Labs. And they're making a first line of ink made from air pollution. So this is uh, capturing emissions from vehicle exhausts. And they've created these, uh, these new pens, markers and spray cans that, that they've given to a bunch of artists to kind of experiment with. So I guess it's a bit of a sort of pilot project to see how they, they get on. Um, but basically the team at Gravikey Labs um, creates a has created a series of tools that attach to pollution emitters like you know exhaust pipes to capture raw carbon and soot that might escape into the air and then the substances uh, are then put through a, a purification process so that they are safe to use and made into ink. Uh, so Tiger's taken the, the product to uh, a whole bunch of street artists over in Asia 
Um, so yeah, that's an interesting one to look out for. The second one comes from Iceland, where scientists say they've discovered a new way to convert carbon dioxide into rock. Uh, like many other carbon capture and storage pilot projects, this one, called CarbFix, uh, faces high hurdles in terms of costs and technology. Uh, but CarbFix's latest results are a great step forward, apparently, towards locking the gas underground forever. So, yeah, two to watch out for, CarbFix and Tiger Air Ink. Mm, I love the Tiger one. Um, I love that it gave the ink to up-and-coming artists to try out, so then it's like air pollution into art, you know? Um, I don't know if you mentioned, but apparently um, one pen's worth of ink contains 40 minutes of diesel exhaust fumes. Wow, that is crazy, that's crazy, isn't it? Um, also, like, what do you think about, it's a beer company. It's odd. I don't really understand why Tiger are involved in this at all. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I actually kind of forgot. I was like, actually, and and, and they say um, in a statement, they said something like, oh, the street, because they gave them to artists on the streets, these pens. And they said, oh, yeah, beer's a good thing to have on the streets, but that's the only link. That I think is. it's kind of a viral story, but yeah, I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> it is weird. Um, so go on then, Vix, to wrap things up. What have we got? Um, so how was your bank holiday, everyone? It's been ages now, hasn't it? Um, <laughs> what bank holiday? Yeah, what bank holiday? Um, did any of you go to the world's second biggest carnival, which is the Notting Hill Carnival, uh, which is apparently 11 times bigger than Glastonbury? The bad news is that it generates about 200 tonnes of waste along the 3.5-mile route, with some 170 workers provided by Veolia cleaning up the mess in time for your morning commute on that Tuesday. But the good news is, is that the waste, which is things like 25,000 rum bottles, Caribbean flags and chicken wings, <laughs> along with more obscure things like an inflatable palm tree and papier-mâché dragon, will be turned into green energy once the recycled balls have been taken out. So it's expected, I don't really know how they're doing this, but it's expected to generate in the region of 97, over 97,000 kilowatt hours of electricity and over 19,000 kilowatt hours of heat which is enough to power 80,000 hot showers or travel 84 kilometers on the tube, which is four times the length of the Victoria line. So combined, this is equivalent to saving 54 tons of CO2 emissions, and this energy will go to the national grid to power local London homes. So this is Veolia saying they love the Notting Hill Carnival because it, it gives them loads more rubbish to burn, basically. Yeah, I think mean, that's, that's the story. That's the story. <laughs> Have you ever been to the Notting Hill Carnival, bit? Yeah, never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> You're so Brist Bristolian. Yeah, like, um, not here, then I'm not, I don't know about it. This year, more than 450 arrests, four stabbings. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's, I think the, the authorities are really having to consider whether they, it's worth the cost. I mean, obviously the cost of clean-up, um, but the cost of policing it, good God. Uh, has not, the Notting Hill Carnival got into the show, there we go. Yeah, well that's, on the Better Business Show you get the whole story, not just the green waste, you get the stabbings as well. Um, so Vix, it's been a pleasure. Uh, normal service is going to resume next week. Yeah, back on Skype. Back on Skype, back on side. Um, so, yeah, that's it for another week. Don't forget to sign up for the Better Business Show newsletter. Uh, just go head over to betterbusiness.show. You can give us your email address and you'll get that every week. Uh, usually goes out on a Friday. Uh, Vix, you've been working on something very interesting, very exciting. Let's tell our listeners all about it. Okay, so um, you might have heard from previous episodes that I have a site called sustygirl.co, which was a blog. It's now not a blog anymore. It's a newsletter, kind of like this news round, rounding up the, what I think is the coolest stories um, in sustainability. 
Um, so for example, this week, today, it's just gone out. It goes out every Friday. It's like five stories that we think are inspiring and you know, will get you kind of excited about sustainability. So one of them is the ink story about like artists using ink made from air pollution. There's an app where um, if you're in Southeast Asia and you catch poaching, like you can just take a picture and you, you can sort of um, stop animal poaching from like the convenience of an app. There's a zero waste video. So it's, it's all like the coolest stuff that's out there, the stories. Um, straight to your inbox every Friday. Look at that. So it's a bit like our news roundup, but in uh, a newsletter. Yeah. For, it's well, not cooler, but it's a newsletter form uh, rather than audio form. Uh, check it out. Where, where people got to go for that, Vix? Sustygirl.co. Sustygirl.co. Well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. I love being in Bristol. And uh, yeah, no, we'll catch up next week. Uh, but that's it for this week on the Better Business Show. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back again next Monday. So until then, goodbye.